This episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. I have tried all of the training boards on the market, but the Grasshopper board is my favorite. I cannot wait to buy a house or property someday just so I can own one of these things so I can train on it every day. Why is it my favorite? Well, first things first, these guys got the basics right. You can actually warm up on this board, which is super critical and super rare. You can't warm up very well on most of the boards out there. The LED lights are in the right spot and they're easy to see when you're climbing and the wall angle is easy to adjust. Those three things already set the grasshopper board apart. But more than that, I absolutely love their holds and their layout. As soon as I climbed on the board, I could tell the folks at Grasshopper put a ton of thought into the hold shapes and where the holds go on the wall. Instead of just shaping a bunch of different variations of crimps and edges and pinches and things that are kind of the same, but all a little different, these guys took the time to shape an awesome collection of holds. They all complement each other and they designed the layout to make the best possible use of every square foot of the board. The layout is also mirrored, which I love. It's really cool to try a hard boulder problem and then flip it around in the app and see if it feels different climbing it the other way around. And I love that if I find a cool boulder problem to try, I immediately have two to work on that are equally good for training. But as always, don't take my word for it because the folks at Grasshopper just want you to try the board for yourself. So be sure to check them out on Instagram at Grasshopper Climbing if you want to see the board. They also just launched a brand new website at grasshopperclimbing.com. It looks amazing. You can contact their sales team to find out where you can try out the board and to find out which board system might be right for you. And if you're ready to buy your very own Grasshopper, be sure to tell them I sent you because they are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8 by 10 foot Grasshopper board. And you can save even more if you upgrade to one of their larger boards. Just tell them I sent you and they will hook it up and save you hundreds of dollars. Once again, you can find them on Instagram at Grasshopper Climbing or at their website, grasshopperclimbing.com, and be sure to tell them I sent you. This episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. This stuff is my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for climbing. I use the repair cream almost every single night, all the time. I use it multiple times a night if I'm climbing in a sharp, crimpy area like Waco Tanks or the bouldering here in Leavenworth, where I am currently. If I come home from a day of climbing and my skin's torn up, I wash my hands and then I apply the repair cream several times throughout the evening. And it really does wonders to healing my skin faster and getting me back on the rock the next day. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com to check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. My favorites are the repair cream. I also love the performance cream and the dry spray. I use those second two whenever I'm climbing in warmer conditions. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. And if you want to learn more about how to use Rhino, I recorded an episode with the founder, Justin Brown, who is a friend of mine way back in episode 22. So you can go check that out to learn more. One final time, rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. 
Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Leah Volpe. Leah is a London-based climber and an athlete on the Great Britain paraclimbing team. She is a two-time medalist at the IFSC Paraclimbing World Championships. She's won bronze and silver two different years. Leah was diagnosed with ataxia, which is a coordination and balance disorder, and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder in her early 20s. And now in her late 20s, Leah is a very accomplished paraclimber. She also holds down a nine to five job working in health policy. She also coaches junior athletes and she's essentially a professional climber on the side. So she definitely stays busy and we had a lot to talk about in this conversation. We talked about paraclimbing competitions. I was very ignorant going into my first conversation with Leah. I've learned a lot from her about paraclimbing competitions, how they work, how the different classifications work and how athletes are assessed for different classifications. We talked about Leah's early life and background and being diagnosed with ataxia. We talked about being in a wheelchair and how people perceive wheelchairs and feeling self-conscious at the climbing wall. Leah uses a wheelchair to get around, but if you saw her on the climbing wall, you would never know it. She looks like an able-bodied climber when she climbs and she's incredibly fit and strong and climbs at a really high level. So it was really interesting to hear about that seeming contradiction there and how she thinks about that. We also talked about working with a coach versus being self-coached and how Leah thinks about keeping training sustainable. We talked about what a bad day looks like for Leah when her symptoms flare up and how she navigates bad days and what full rest days look like. And we talked about her coaching as well. She now coaches a juniors team. And I was curious to hear if there were any life lessons or things that she hopes to pass on to her kids that she coaches. And we had an interesting conversation about empathy in coaching and the role of a coach or teacher from Leah's perspective. We also talked about the pressure of feeling like you need to be an inspiration as a disabled athlete. And we talked about outdoor climbing and the barriers involved in climbing outside and why Leah primarily identifies as an indoor competition climber. And we covered a lot more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Leah. She's really well-spoken and really thoughtful and insightful. And I hope you guys enjoy. So without further ado, let's dive in. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Leah Volpe. You do have more energy today, I can tell. Actually, I do. yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah I know. You, you were very was, clear and like very thoughtful, but um, subdued last time we talked. Yeah, because I think I was just like, I don't know. I was, yeah, I don't know. Because it's been like quite a slow process of getting my energy back, but mm. and you don't necessarily notice. Like sometimes still feel a bit tired or like get the odd headache, uh, but everyone's like, oh, I can see that you're feeling so much better and I'm like oh am I but no like by now I feel pretty much back to normal I can do I can do things now I can have like a normal busy weekend and still have energy like I have work tomorrow and I'm feeling fine about it I'm not thinking oh my god I've used all my energy for socializing this weekend and now I have to 
go and do my job tomorrow. Um, so yeah, I've been lucky actually. It's been, I guess I tested positive just under a month ago and I'm pretty much over it. So well, that's good. Glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, Leah, it's so good to see you again. Thank you for being here. I've been really excited to talk to you. So um, yeah, good to see you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Awesome. Um, I think as a way of introducing you to my listeners, it would be, I think it'd be really interesting to hear about a day in Leah's life. And I'm going to leave that really broad and let you just talk about a day in your life, however, however you want to. And then I can always ask follow-up questions, but yeah, give us a day. So I guess my, like a normal weekday for me would, it would start with work. I work in health policy for the NHS, the National Health Service in, in the UK. And um, I work in, on like health inequalities policy specifically. So like government policies and, and health service policies that, are aimed at like reducing avoidable and unjustified differences between people's health who are like living in more deprived parts of the country or who are from ethnic minority backgrounds um, and face health inequalities and more affluent people. And um, so I do that from nine to five and I do it mostly um, at home at the moment, but there is also, um, I spend some days in the office. And so like, and then in the evening I'll I'll go training or sometimes I'll be coaching, like teaching mainly like junior athletes, primarily teenagers, like age like 10, 11 and upwards. Um, so I'll get to like 5 p.m. and I'll like have a snack, have maybe have another coffee if I'm feeling tired from the day. Um, and then I'll, yeah, head out to the gym and it's about a 45 minute journey. So I get there like... 6 p.m. and do my training which would usually usually be like bouldering and some weights or bouldering and some conditioning handboarding pull up something like that and then yeah travel back home on the train have dinner at like 9 p.m. do some reading and then yeah head to bed at like 11. That was a really really like speedy summary of my day um and weekends are kind of kind of similar in that usually I'll usually I'll climb, but I'll go like in the day. Um, on Sundays I coach the it's a, like a junior competition squad, um, and they vary in ages, but there's like 16, 16 of them. So I we do like a four hour training session with them on Sundays, and then in the afternoon I'll do my own um, my own training. Usually like somewhat psyched from watching them like crush in the morning <laughs> and then I'll be like okay I'm gonna get on these climbs now <laughs> and they will have made it look a thousand times easier than it actually is um so yeah I have a pretty um usually pretty busy week because I'm like working nine to five in a full-time job and then I'm doing like some additional teaching on top and all my own training and like trying to fit in like other necessities like cooking and cleaning and laundry and just like you know eating meals and seeing friends and family and stuff like that mm -hmm. that sounds like quite a busy schedule and one of the things i have on my list here to ask you about later is time management and strategies that you have for that because yeah it's that's an incredible number of things that you have on your plate um but before that i want to ask you like what do you do to unwind to to recharge um 
maybe you can use this weekend as an example. It sounds like you're out socializing, but what do you what do you do to just fill yourself back up and and turn your brain off, whatever you need to do to recharge? Usually it's like spending time with with friends or family. So um both my my parents are um separated, but they both live with their partners in London, like half an hour's journey from me. So it's really easy to get to see them. And so me and my wife will go and um, have lunch with like this weekend on Sunday, on on Friday, even on Friday, we went for lunch with my dad and my stepmom and sister at a restaurant in West London. And then Saturday, it was actually my wife and by birthday. So we actually, we went to see Hamilton. Um, you know, the, it's like the original Broadway yeah, but well, they have it in London now, and um, so we went to see that, and then we went for dinner with my mom and Vinby's sister and my brother, and then yesterday we cooked for like five or six of our friends and had like a picnic in the park across the street from us. So that was actually like unusually non-climbing centered. Actually, I would say most of my weekends have. A lot are a lot more like climbing centric. I just fit in my training sessions in the early mornings this weekend. Um, but yeah, to unwind, it's like yeah, any t- anything that I'm doing where I'm not, um, you know, I think when you're like trying to perform as an athlete, often you kind of spend all your time either thinking, either you're thinking about work or you're thinking about your training. Um, so yeah, spending time with people who are not immersed in that world can be quite refreshing. Mm. I think. Um, a lot of my friends are climbers, actually. Like my closest friends are all climbers. Um, and it's rare that we would get a chance to hang out outside of a climbing setting, um, which I love doing equally as much as I do just seeing them like for brunch or coffee or drinks or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't know that... Um, I spend as much time unwinding as I could. <laughs> I think I'm like kind of on the go all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. We talked when we had our like original conversation, didn't we? we? We were talking about like the difficulty of being forced to just stop and rest. And I think I was like four or five days in <laughs> at that point, four or five days in and I was just, I mean, I was kind of, I was like COVID wiped the floor with me. So I was, I, I was in bed for another week and a half, basically, um, after that conversation. And yeah, I, I've never like properly rested like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, maybe, totally. maybe ever, or maybe, maybe I have, but not, not really since being a climber. Um, it's always been very much a feeling of like oh there is there's so much I feel like so motivated to be out climbing I say be out climbing I climb indoors but like be like at the climbing gym with with people or doing my training or at a competition and um that I never really feel I don't feel burnt out by it so I don't really notice that I'm not Mm. resting much um And to be honest, my job is like physically, you know, my health policy job is physically very sedentary. So I get like physical rest during the daytime because I'm sitting at my desk and I like I don't even really commute at the moment. Um, So then the evenings I spend 
being more like physically active. And I quite like that balance because that kind of gives me a chance to switch off my mind um, from what can be quite like a intellectually intense mm. job. Like it's thinking, a lot of like decision making. Um, so it's nice to, um, it's kind of, it's kind of a nice balance. I've had like creative hobbies where if I had a stressful day at work, I wouldn't feel like energized to do it in the evening. Whereas climbing, I think actually I feel more excited to climb on days when I felt like really cooped up at my desk in front of my computer doing something like full on. So yeah, it's, um, it's good. I guess like I kind of get my, I re-energize myself for parts of my life by doing other things in yeah. other parts of it. And it is quite circular. Um, but yeah, still, I'm, I'd say I'm like, I'm one of those people who's just always busy. Yeah, yeah. I can relate to that very much. And I feel really lucky that the work that I get to do with the podcast, talking to people like you, and then even the time in front of the computer editing and publishing and things like that, um, it's a perfect complement to climbing. Whereas, like, if I, w- I, I, I keep wanting to kind of get back into music, that's like a other love passion of mine from, you know, kind of my past life. And I keep wanting to reintroduce that, but it's too... Um, there's too much overlap with the creative energy, like the mental energy that I have from creating the podcast, but climbing feels totally different. I can go, like I'll finish a conversation and feel really psyched to go move my body and and climb on the rock. So, but it is interesting. Like, I think you're, I think I feel the same way. They complement one another well. One's, um, you know, physical rest. The other one is like a little bit more mental rest. So it works. But sometimes I think like, man, I probably don't take enough total downtime. And it's hard. It's hard to do that and make yourself do that when you don't need to. I think a lot of climbers, like hard charging climbers can relate to that. It's just, it's kind of funny. We don't have a clear like off season. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think like, you know, even, even off season from competitions is, it's like time to like do your winter training or like. I don't know, pick up other projects or, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's, there is like an impulse, I think, to fill, fill time. But, you know, I think particularly active people feel, I guess, I think a lot of people would relate to like getting a sense of guilt from wasting time. Like if you're just sat sitting at home, not doing anything, watching TV, reading a book, um just relaxing then you're not you're not using your time the time that you have or the energy that you have um but I think that can be just as productive as as anything else I mean I think you know I think you know like having because I'm because I'm disabled I think like my energy resources have always been quite limited compared to a lot of people like I've always had to pace myself and like ration the energy that I have and I think you know the benefit of like not benefit but you know I've just been, I've just been lucky I think in that my energy resources have increased so like in the past five years being a bit stronger being a bit more active has like helped me have more energy to do things so I can just be busy all the time now whereas I think when I was a bit younger like 21 22 I couldn't I couldn't do more than one thing in a day um but I'm kind of used to that process of 
like prioritizing what do I need to do today? What do I want to do today? How much energy is that going to take up? Do I have that? Mm. And how do I, yeah, like it feels like a, I don't know. I think it's just the process that I do by default now, whereas I think a lot of people, and I feel like I've noticed it a bit with the pandemic, I guess, as well, of like people recovering from COVID and having more fatigue than they're used to having and doing too much too soon and then and then potentially having to take a step back and feeling really frustrated and guilty that they can't do everything that they want to do or that they feel they should do. And that's kind of something that I've lived with for like seven or eight years now. And it feels quite natural almost. So I suppose um, the the kind of past few weeks for me have been just about <laughs> revisiting some of those skills um, in like pacing and and budgeting for, you know, like if I want to go out for dinner with my friends on Tuesday, for example, then tomorrow I have to be... I have to think about what I do both like physically and socially and mentally to be able to like have the energy for those things that I want to prioritize. Um, and I think we all do it in our training. Like it's just an extension of that. I think like, you know, you have your rest days, you have your harder training days, you have your deload weeks. Um, I guess it's kind of that, but on a macro life mm. scale. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I want to I want to dive into that because I was introduced to you through your friend Doreen. Shout out to Doreen if you're listening to this. Thank you for introducing us. And she introduced you as a paraclimber, among many other things. She talked about a lot of um, your your different qualities and traits. But that's of course something that was interesting to me right up front because I haven't had a paraclimber on the show. I'll admit I know very little about paraclimbing and haven't really dove deeply into that category of the sport of climbing. And I thought it'd be really interesting to chat with you. Um, and it was really interesting to just check out your Instagram initially. And I was kind of immediately struck with this, this feeling like, oh, wow, of course. Like I, I had, when I thought about paraclimbing in the past, I would immediately think of amputees. I would think of like things I could see visually that set athletes apart from the athletes that I watch in the IFSC World Cup um, open category for example. Yeah. Um, you look strong. You look you look like a normal climber that I would see on Instagram. So I would love to hear as a way of just sharing more about who you are to the listeners. What are some aspects of your life that are different for you than for the people around you? Yeah. So I guess like power climbing, I think is, it is kind of characterized by, um, there's like a whole there's like a whole spectrum of, of athletes there's different sport classes or categories of impairment or disability that that you can kind of fit into and so there's there's groups of visually impaired athletes who climb and there's amputees who climb and then there's people with um like neurological or physical disabilities conditions and impairments that um can be less visible and I think it kind of depends how you define visibility like for me personally I'm a wheelchair user so um if you see me you know, kind of, you know, rolling around in the gym before I get on the wall, you can see that I'm disabled because like a wheelchair is a very visible like symbol of disability. But as soon as, as soon as that's gone, then yeah, I'm fit and strong. And for, to a great extent, that kind of, it, that can disguise a lot of the 
kind of physical issues that I'm dealing with. So, you know, my um, I compete in the RP2 category um, with ataxia and I also have a, a condition that affects my joints and ataxia is a coordination and balance impairment as so you'd think like how can a how can somebody with that do like climb on slab or do dynamic moves and it literally does just come down to like if I want to do a move like that it's like 20 30 attempts um I, I can't feel where I'm moving to really when I'm climbing. So um, so like that proprioception aspect that a lot of the like top, top climbers have really, really good proprioception. That's what sets them apart. Like I just don't really have that. So it's all about like muscle memory and I have to just rely on practice basically. So my training is constant, constant drills of dynamic movement. So then what you see on um, on social media is like the culmination of like hours and hours and hours of practice over years and I think you know in many ways it's like you know we all have everybody's or like every paraclimber's disability is is different right and there's going to be um paraclimbers with even maybe a similar condition to me but um who wouldn't climb the way that I climb and there'll be people who um whose disability is even less visible than mine because um but it's still like it's still there in your training. It's still there in your in your competition, and so it's how you are like compensating for that, and what strategies you might have to use to like work around your impairment. So, an example of that when I climb is for me to find a small foothold on the wall. I make contact with my foot, like I make contact with the wall, and then I slide it down the wall, like to find the foothold. And so my foot just like lands on the on the foothold because. I've kind of like put it in the vicinity and like felt around for the for the hold whereas and actually that's quite a similar strategy to what the visually impaired climbers use so that's quite an interesting parallel that I've um I've noticed but then there's you know climbers with for example spinal fusions you can't twist or bend their torso um and it alters their center of gravity and their core tension so they have to compensate for that so there's there's all sorts of things that are you can't really see them in somebody who's just like standing in front of you, but it's kind of there and it's kind of a testament to the like training and, and practice that people have done that sometimes there's like quite significant things that, and you just can't even tell that there's anything wrong. Mm. In scare quotes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the light bulb moment for me looking at your account was like, oh yeah, there's, there's so many different impairments disabilities like conditions whatever you you want to call that so of course this isn't just like one big lump category and I, I think I've been thinking about that like why didn't I think about that ever before and I think it was because when I was in high school I was on the track team and um, we had some para athletes competing in I, I can't remember what events but a, just a couple like 400 meter um events or things like that. And there were like three athletes, right? And they had completely different impairments, but they were all grouped together because there's only three of them. And I, th I think maybe that's what my brain was stuck on, but there's this whole world of categories and classifications. And you mentioned the, the big three categories, uh, vision impairment, amputees, but then of course you have all these subcategories. Um, neurological would be the third one, but then you have, you know, just within amputees, you have lower leg versus upper leg versus arm versus upper arm and all, all these different things that separate people. And yeah, it just, it, it was just kind of this bing, like, oh, that makes sense. I'd never thought about that before. 
And I wanted to ask you, I mean, of, of the things you've talked about so far, I think the comment you made about being a wheelchair user will stand out to people that you literally roll up to the bouldering wall in a wheelchair and then you're able to climb at a really respectable hard level, which is really interesting. I'd love to hear you elaborate on what it is that you experience that makes a wheelchair the most viable means of of getting around in your day-to-day life. How is that different on the wall and and why does how did you find climbing? Like what like what is it that that just um is able to how how is it that it's able to work for you so well? Mm. So I, I mean, I guess like the, the primary difference is, is that you have four points of contact on the wall or like, or three or, you know, whatever. And, you know, when you've got a balance issue, walking around is, it takes a lot of concentration and effort and it's fatiguing. And I was finding that just the kind of act of just walking around day to day was like, it was kind of slow and laborious and also it was just using up all my energy. And so, you know, if I would go to like an event or I want to go shopping or even just kind of getting from A to B, getting to work, spending a day in the office, going out for lunch, coming home again, that actually there was not really any room for like enjoying that experience because it was just physically really uncomfortable. Um, I have a lot of spinal issues that cause pain, like pain in my legs, pain in my back, and it's all kind of interlinked. And it was just, it was, it was just a point where getting around, even using like mobility aids, like crutches or a cane or whatever. Um, even, even with that, it was just not, it didn't feel that sustainable anymore for me because it was so the consequences were just so noticeable like I'd come home in the evening I would just have to lay there like I would have to lay down for the whole evening I couldn't then like cook a meal in the evening because I've basically like I've used up all my ability to stand for the day and I'm just in in pain and the thing with the thing with using a wheelchair is just that all of that is gone. It's like, you know, I can still walk. I can put one foot in front of the other and walk, but it comes at a cost that doesn't feel like it just isn't worth it. And, um, you know, the, the danger of getting injured just isn't, it just doesn't really justify the kind of, (laughs) there's like a kind of sense of like, oh, if you like, if you give up walking, I mean, I haven't given up walking, but if I like choose to use a mobility aid because it has it has sort of been a choice really it's not really a choice anymore but in the beginning it was a choice to to transition to using a wheelchair that I'd kind of given up on on walking and it was it was but it was it was not really that because in giving up on what seems like a mundane task you're also you know that's like saying I've given up on like you know my hobbies when I was younger were like hiking and camping and like being outdoors and I was I ran half marathons and I had to give up all of that I didn't I didn't choose to I didn't like choose a lifestyle where I couldn't do all of those things that I love doing but it was just that the trade-offs in the end were were so great and yeah so climbing is just there's something about it which I think feels a bit more 
it feels more natural. It takes some weight off my feet, which means that I don't really notice the kind of the like weight bearing element, like falling, bad falls in bouldering are still like a, a one or two bad falls in a bouldering session. And I will, it will flare up my back badly enough that I can't like move for days. So I have to be careful still, but it's just something that it strengthens all my joints. It gives me a means to practice all of the like movement skills that when you have a neurological condition, you can lose like coordination, hand-eye coordination, balance, body awareness, and and all of those those things it's like physical therapy for me basically it's like mm. it it treats my my conditions in a lot of ways and it's just a bonus really that I've been lucky enough to be like objectively quite good at it as well not just not just good at it for somebody with a brain disease but like good at it good even if I didn't have that people would probably still think I was Good. And I say that like I thought so seeing your Instagram. Yeah. I, I was like, is this the right page? Yeah. <laughs> but I train hard. I I know I yeah, I know you do. Yeah, yeah. I've I've yeah, like I've worked hard. So I feel I think it can be easy to get into a kind of imposter syndrome situation where you think, Oh, if I'm like if I'm a talented athlete, right, if I'm like if I have a high level of skill in a sport, am I really a para athlete? But that really speaks the, the the fundamental point of parasport, which is that you can be disabled and you can be really talented at a sport and you can be a really like high level athlete. And you still have all of the uh, kind of and a certain level of privilege comes with this, right? But to have all of the abilities to follow a training plan, work hard, have a goal and work towards it and and push your body to it's limit, whatever that limit is. And everybody and, and in parasport and in in just the general population, right? Everybody has a different um threshold for like what they're able to achieve. And that to be able to move is like, I don't know, it's like a universally accessible thing, I think, to move your body in. And for some for some people that may not it won't look like climbing, but for for paraclimbers, climbing has been the, the thing that has like something has clicked into place for them. And I think it's, I kind of hear that story over and over again, talking to other para-athletes that it was just the thing that felt, it felt right. And they wanted to keep going back and again and again. And I think it's because of the way that you can, you can alter moves and find a different way of doing a particular move that suits your body, but also you can, you can progress at your own pace and there's no like, there's no like universal standard for what is considered good. It's like there's no Boston Marathon where you have to like, you have to qualify with a four hour marathon time. It's like you can be in at the crag or in a gym and there's a V0 next to a V10 and the pro climber will be trying the V10 maybe and and the beginner will be trying the V0 and in your rest periods, you're sat on the mats together and you might be talking. And it feels like the hierarchy in climbing. I mean, I think there is a kind of, there is a bit of a cultural hierarchy in terms of like what's considered good and what's considered like noteworthy in terms of achievement, like with any sport, but in terms of access, I think it's, it's one of the, it's one of the better ones. And, um, and I think that's what attracts so many disabled 
people to it as a sport. Um, but then I think, you know, I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's, I love that. That actually brings a thought to mind, which is something I really appreciate about climbing, um, which is that I think compared to most other things that we do for fun or as a sport, it's just kind of unique in that most people that now engage in climbing start as adults. I mean, it's changing now. More and more kids are getting into it. But it's so common to start rock climbing or climbing in a gym as an adult. And everyone starts at V0, you know, like unless you were a gymnast or did something kind of unique that prepared you for climbing. It's so different from everything else that we typically do. It's so different from playing soccer and from running half marathons and all these other things that it, it kind of just levels the playing field. And so no matter how good you get, almost everybody in the climbing gym can relate to the V0 climber because they've been there and they remember that because they were a grown person at the time. And I just, I love that about it. I think that's, it's so cool. There's like a built-in humility, you know, it just kicks everyone down. And then you have to try really hard to work your way up and it's, it's awesome. Yeah. And I think, you know, as well, that failure is part of the process of climbing, that it's pretty much universally like acknowledged that if you're not falling off, you're not actually, you're not, you're not trying. Whereas I, and you know, I, you know, we can unpack that, can't we? But like, you know, I think if you, if you look at other sports, like, I don't know, like I'm not that familiar with a lot of other sports, but I think there is a sense in, you know, things like endurance sports, for example, where you get a time and it's like, it's either a good time or it's not a good time. But failure is often is seen as like not really being an option at all. It's like you to pull out of a race, for example, wouldn't be an option or to like pull out of a match wouldn't be an option that you just continue through to the end. Whereas I think in climbing, because it's so skill-based and, and like, you know, the, there's a focus on, like having a project and it's a process and there is like a promise of success at the end of it. But part of the process is about falling off and not being able to do things yet. Um, that I think that's something that we can all relate to the difficulty of, of that. And like the mindset shift that, that it, it provokes in us. And um, yeah, I think, I think climbing because it has that additional like problem solving element and that, um kind of binary success failure expectation it feels i think a bit more yeah like you say like it levels the playing field um we all we all have to go through the exact same steps it doesn't matter what the grade of the climb is the steps are basically the same it's like figuring out the moves having the the kind of psychological like bravery to to try hard um resting refining your beta it's all like we all have to do that it doesn't mean matter who you are or like where you are we all have to do it so yeah I think it's um I think it is a good leveler I'd love to take a step back and I'd love to hear more about your early life and then your diagnosis or diagnoses um, you talked about loving hiking and running when did things change for you are these genetic conditions that you were born with? Did they, you know, is there like a certain age at which they start to present symptoms? Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, so I was um, kind of always had, always had like 
you know, I had back issues as a teenager. I had knee and ankle issues as a as a teenager, but it wasn't ever really it wasn't like bad enough that anybody that we needed to really like look into it. And um but it was when I was about 20, 20, 21, I'm 29 now, um, that I developed these headaches. Um, and so I then I had a um a scan of my brain and um found the kind of it found a kind of abnormality in the part of the brain that controls your like movement and coordination it's how like all the signals from your brain about like the decisions that you make to move your body go through this part of your brain this is like very layman science to the spinal cord which is what like like innovates your muscles and makes the movement happen right so if those signals are disrupted in some way and um then that can affect how like well you can execute a movement and um I found that the left side of that part of my brain didn't form correctly when in the womb I guess and um and that kind of explained a lot of the, the the balance issues but what it also found was that my spine was like like structurally like I don't know, like not formed correctly. And so that was causing damage to the top of my spinal cord, which also very like minorly disrupts those signals as well, which causes further problems with like joint positioning and feeling where my body is in space, which is why the issues had worsened. Even though I was born with them, they worsened. Um, and alongside that, like, you know, things like nerve pains in my legs, like sciatica, um, joint joint issues I'm, I'm hypermobile I have um Ehlers-Danlos syndrome which is a hypermobility condition it affects your connective tissue and ligaments and tendons and things so that was um creating like just pain like the pain in my legs at the end of the day was starting to increase more and more as I think when I like moved to London and started a job um so I was like commuting more it was a lot more walking because I couldn't afford public transport at the time and that was really when I noticed things started to go downhill with my health and I developed like some stomach issues, a, a heart issue. And um, yeah, it was when I was like 21, 22 that I went to a consultant with all of these problems and I said, like, what the hell is wrong with me? And it was kind of from there that um, I realized that I was basically going to be living with this forever. And, and they don't really know why some people um, have, you know, severe health problems from like early childhood versus those who become more unwell and like more physically disabled in adulthood um but I think essentially like I just kind of reached a tipping point I suppose so I started to walk with crutches but I didn't really find it was helping my um pain in any way and it was also quite it was also like harder to get around because it was like if I ever needed to like get my phone out or like get a payment card out or carry something, I just couldn't do it. So I, that was when it was like recommended that I start looking into um, wheelchairs. And at the time it was like, what? You know, this was like, yeah, at this point it had not been maybe a year since I had been training for a half marathon. Um, you know, this was like, this isn't me. Like I'm not mm. disabled. And then, and then, you know, I I think as I started to read about, you know, things like 
disability theory and like social justice principles around disability and learning about accessibility and learning about ableism and I think I started to like identify those like barriers to living a like productive and and like comfortable and fulfilled life were coming from like just being in pain all the time because the life that was like that I was living was just damaging my health um and I think I think it, I kind of came to terms with it in that way um and yeah I guess over the years um I've needed my wheelchair more and more like my walking abilities kind of gotten less over over the years where I use it nearly all the time now and um yeah I guess at some point along the way I discovered I discovered climbing um I had a friend who she lives in um she lives in America actually but um she'd recently started climbing was posting some videos on social media and I thought it looked kind of fun I was looking for a new hobby to replace all the ones that I'd had to stop um and yeah I just went along to a like a local the local gym near my office was running like a taster session so I went along and um I couldn't I was too scared to like go all the way to the top um and I also like they couldn't I couldn't learn to fall safely so they teach you how to fall safely so you have to like you know land on two feet evenly and then roll back and like keep your arms out of the way um and I was just I just couldn't figure it out it was like the most complicated thing I'd ever like had to do almost um so then they were like well you can't go to the top until you know how to fall safely so um that took me a little while but um yeah I just I don't know I just like I went home that night I couldn't stop thinking about it about the next time I could go I was just like completely I don't know I was obsessed basically from day one I like kept going back I couldn't go very much at first because I just like didn't really have the energy for it but um yeah over the years gradually like built up the amount that I could climb and yeah I don't know it feels hard to imagine a life without it now mm. that's amazing how long have you been climbing now five years now okay I have a note in front of me that I want to ask you about we talked about the wheelchair to get to the climbing wall and then climbing I have a note here in front of me that talked about this is from our first conversation. You said that at first you were really self-conscious about the contradiction, being in the wheelchair and then getting on the bouldering wall. And I have another note um, from that conversation about just your thoughts on how people react to being in a wheelchair and our lack of understanding of that in the climbing culture and, and thinking about it in a really binary way. Would you be able to just share some of your thoughts on that and, and elaborate on those notes that I have? Hmm. Yeah, I th I guess it's just a symptom of like what our education around disability is like. You know, when we're young, in society in general, how disability is represented in in the media. That like if you're a wheelchair user, I think people I think some people's expectation is that basically you have paralysis of your legs and you can't move them at all. You can't walk at all. You can't you know do you can't do physical things. Um, that's like, you know, it's it's something that I think, I don't know, I guess it's just, you know, it's the way that, it's the way that we're shown 
wheelchairs as a mobility device that like the spectrum of like who and how one might use a mobility aid like a wheelchair is not really why why would you know about it if you mm. don't know a if you don't know a wheelchair if you don't know a, a para athlete then why would you expect that a wheelchair user could stand up out of their wheelchair and get onto a climbing wall and and climb well like I can kind of understand where it comes from but equally I think it's important to keep trying to like change that narrative because it does create it does create stigma and it does create that like self-consciousness that you know if I show up at a climbing wall um I'm I'm in a wheelchair I'm a wheelchair user I'm like visibly disabled but then I climb to a standard that people don't expect of me what are they then thinking and I think you know it would be good I think to be able to kind of move past that you know I was at a I went to a climbing wall um a few months back and it was one that I hadn't been to in a while and I think that was probably part part of it that I, I, you know, everything was fine. I arrived, I did my climbing session. Um, and then I was like sat in my chair getting ready to leave at the end. And um, this person came up to me and they said, um, well, you're, you're in a wheelchair. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and they were like, but you, but you climb really well. So what, what's the deal? What's that about? And I was like, what? is your what is your question you know I, mm. I bet it was just like it just showed me I think how um surprising it it can be to see and I don't I don't blame people for that but I do think that um you know it's you know and what I will say is that actually I've like observed that most people everybody really I think is is very open-minded and you know I've I've never been like I've never felt, I think once people kind of get to know you and they just like see you around and they're used to seeing you, then um, it feels a lot less like weird. And part of it is also, I guess, my own internalized ableism. Like maybe I don't truly believe that like, I, that this should be, that this should be my reality, but for whatever reason it is. And, um, and I think that's, that's kind of fine you know, like disability is really, really complex and really, really varied. And I think everybody's experience of disability is completely, well, it's completely valid, I suppose. Um, And yeah, so I I don't know, I guess it's just that self-consciousness comes down to like, I kind of know, I can kind of anticipate people's surprise if they've not seen a wheelchair user climb before but also I think that as paraclimbing grows in popularity um and like you know people's awareness of it grows like it's it, get, it gets a little bit more um airtime now um and social media has helped with that that I think you know the profile of it as a discipline will help people to it will help grow the sport because I think you know increasingly more disabled people who've not been exposed to climbing will will see it as a valid option for them just like I did um and equally the kind of wider community climbing community at large will like just I guess just see it as just part of part of the climbing world it's not like a kind of niche side thing it's the whole thing like 20 percent of people in the world globally are are disabled and so you know this isn't like 
this isn't niche. It's just, it's really disabilities, like a really universal human experience that actually we all, as we get older, experience to one extent or another. Um, and not everybody who is disabled is going to get into, into para sport. I think it's, you know, is equally a harmful trope. I think that, that every, that, that, if you're disabled, you're either completely sedentary and not physically active in your housebound and you stay inside all the time and need help with everything, or you're a Paralympian. You know, there's a huge, huge spectrum <laughs> of people in between. Sure. Um, and I recognise that I'm probably at, like, you know, if, if paraclimbing was in the Paralympics, I'm maybe I would be a Paralympian. But I think... I don't know, I kind of see myself as having a bit of a responsibility as like a paraclimber with a social media following to an extent. It's not huge, but like, you know, it's like people, when they think of paraclimbing, they think of maybe the people who they follow on social media or the people they've seen. Um, so I think to be able to like showcase the range of experiences of disability, I think is something that is is super important because I can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not everybody's experience, nor is, you know, anyone else. Um, so, yeah. It's really, it's cool. It's really encouraging to hear that your experience with people has been mostly that they're really open-minded, um, if given the right perspective to try on, you know, to, to see something new, to learn something new. Um, and going back to your time kind of transitioning into a new different lifestyle and studying disability theory and, and kind of immersing in greater understanding of what you were dealing with. I wonder if there's any, like, are there any things you can pass on to people listening? People like me who just seeing your Instagram page was kind of a paradigm shift, like kind of a light bulb moment of, wow, oh, I, I never, it just clicked. Dis, like, Paraclimbing, having disabilities in climbing can look like so many different things. I just never thought about that. I only had thought about like amputees, you know, people that I could see visually. Um, yeah. Do you, do you have any things that you just kind of wish everyone knew or, you know, things that we, we never have an opportunity to learn growing up that um, you think would be beneficial to put on people's radar? I, I'm kind of putting you on the spot with this and it's a really broad question, but are there any things that come to mind? Uh, yeah, that's, oh, that's a hard one. I, I guess, I mean, I guess what I just said about how, you know, disability is just, it's not just one thing. It doesn't look one way. There's not one way to be disabled you know you you probably know like five disabled people and you might not even know it like mm. you know everybody uh, you know we're we're just like out living our lives like anyone else but I think also I guess you know the barriers that that make us disabled are the kind of the ones in society and in our like built environment that that kind of create those you know like inaccessibility of buildings for example or like transport systems but but also just you know employment practices and housing policies and government like social security policies are all things that like make life for disabled people so inordinately difficult um and I think this like need to kind of prove over and over again that you actually need the help that you're asking for you need the like mm. accommodation that you're asking for I think it's just like another drain on people's energy 
that it's kind of kind of I just I think kind of unnecessary and I you know I think if if I don't know like I don't think I can like right now pin down one like change that I would like to see that would make like the world better for the disabled community but I certainly think like you know just having that um you know when I when I'm kind of you know out and about or I'm at work or I'm at um a climbing wall or in a climbing competition like I feel I feel least disabled when I don't have to like I don't have to ask twice for there to be like a ramp into the building or like you know just um people have kind of thought about it before before they've been faced with the issue so like if you're like organizing people are organizing an event I feel like I'm rambling now but like if you're organizing an event and you've thought about inaccessibility and how to like remove some of those barriers beforehand then people will arrive and they know that they've been thought about and they're not they've not been forgotten about and nobody is surprised to see a disabled person at their venue or at their climbing wall or whatever because it's just an expectation that will be there because of course we will because we exist you know um yeah so I think I think it's that I think it's just that like not having to constantly advocate because because like non-disabled people are already they're already thinking about it and I think what that takes is just education and understanding and like a bit of curiosity and research on the part of people who are in charge of of running these you know anything running a workplace running a store running a restaurant um so yeah I think it's I think it's that like not having the whole burden of um inaccessibility put onto the people who will like feel the effects of it the most mm. thank you for sharing all that I think um I mean like like it was for me I think just hearing your story and your perspectives are, are going to go a long way for just opening people up to other athletes that they hadn't thought about before and, and what other athletes are dealing with that they don't have to deal with on a day-to-day. -day. Um, can we go into the nuts and bolts of paraclimbing competitions for a moment? Because I, as I said, I was incredibly ignorant about that coming into our first conversation. I'm slightly less ignorant now because you walked me through part of it, but I wonder if you could do the same for listeners. Um, you already talked about some of the categories, broadly speaking, but hearing about like the the size of the rule book, for instance, and how the categories change and they're still kind of tweaking things. And that can, you know, you're competing in one category or, you know, preparing for it event and then all of a sudden you don't qualify anymore because they changed the rules that was all really interesting to hear about but um to start with can you give me the kind of the the macro the big picture of the paraclimbing competitions what is the same as the you know i just watched like the ifsc open bouldering world cup so um what's the same what's different with paraclimbing competitions versus the competitions that many of us have watched on YouTube, for instance? Yeah, so a paraclimbing competition functions similarly to a lead, um, a lead World Cup, except we compete on top rope. Um, so same wall, typically, like it's usually like the same similar competition venues to the lead World Cups, but um, they put these top ropes up. Like th that's primarily just to kind of level the playing field a bit in terms of 
you know, if you've got, um, I think there's like a safety aspect for some paraclimbers in terms of not taking big falls, but also um, if you've, if for example, you're an upper limb amputee, then um, clipping a quick jaw while like maintaining three points of contact is more challenging. Um, and there are, there are um, upper limb amputees who lead climb. There's like paraclimbers of all categories who lead climb. Um, but in competition, we're on top rope. And yeah, we have like a usually two qualifying routes um, and a final. So we don't do a semi-final, and that's just because the size of the of the categories is still really small. Um, so I think you have to have at least, I think it's six climbers from four countries in a category, um, and then th I think three advance to the final. So you can see like you don't need that semi-final to to kind of narrow down the field the way you do when you've got like 200 people on the starting list um and yeah the routes are again like tend to be they vary a bit from category to category so um the like most neurologically impaired um climbers as well as the seated climbers so um climbers with like spinal cord injuries essentially they basically campus the route they will be on um like a slightly easier graded route whereas you go all the way up to like men's rp3 which is the least neurologically impaired category or the men's um like leg amputee categories they'll be often for their final be on like 8a um so it does um vary hugely in difficulty they, so the setters have to do they have to put up like oh i guess almost like four times as many routes um usually some sport classes will share some routes um and there's also some merging. If your category is too small, you'll get merged into a less impaired category. Um, so it's like a really, really complex addition. Um, like you, the format is is not dissimilar, but um, you add in all of these additional requirements around like what kind of route you can set. Like you need for like you need symmetry or you need proper contrast on the wolf. If you've got a visual impairment, you need um, like they'll those climbers have will have sight guides so they'll have like a radio um headset so they're like they'll have a, a sight guide who's kind of pointing out the holds so you can go from like having some quite limited vision to having no vision at all and that will kind of guide how much um, information you need from your sight guide but essentially um you can kind of have somebody actually telling you like exactly where the next hold is using um the clock face to to explain like what the location is and how far away the hold is um describing the type of hold you've got and then yeah it's um it's super i mean it's always really exciting to be at a comp like that because you see just a hugely huge just a huge number of different climbing styles because paraclimbers having you know, having to adapt to, to a disability just means that like no two climbers climb exactly the same. And you'll see like a million different ways of doing the same move. Um, so yeah, it's always really, it's always really cool to be there and, and watch what people are doing. And it's kind of exciting as well to be part of the sport as it grows. Um, and the IFSC are planning to put in a bid for the 2028 20, Paralympics in LA. That's the plan. So um, and as part of that, yeah, we've had some changes to the classification system, um, which has been 
it's been a challenge, I think. It's been a challenge for the IFSC, but it's also been a huge challenge for the athletes because there are a number of people who are no longer eligible under the new rules because we now have to be aligned with the the International Paralympics Committee's rules on eligibility. The IFSC's previous classification system was just a bit more flexible in terms of who could compete with what conditions. And now if you have there's certain conditions which are no longer um, eligible to be considered as part of your like impairment for assessment for a category. So quite a few people last year when they did the reclassification for the first time were told actually, no, you're, um, you can't compete. And, you know, these are people who are, they are disabled. They do have a very real impairment and they do have to adapt their climbing. So and it's a shame, I guess, because they're like, don't really have a home in able-bodied sport. Many of them, some some do compete in able-bodied climbing as well. Um, but then they can't compete in paraclimbing either. So it was a bit controversial at the time. I think there's a general sense that like the Paralympics is for the good of the sport and it will help the sport grow and it's for the like greater good. Um, but I don't think everybody agreed with that. Mm. And um, I've been in two minds personally. Um, I think it's I think it's a difficult situation either way because either we have to either we have to lose some athletes or we have to lose out on the opportunity to be a Paralympic sport. I'm a bit like it depends what direction you want to take the sport in and whether you think that paraclimbing is ready for this. And I'm not sure that we are, but um, I can't fault the efforts of of the classifiers and the IFSC who have like a lot of work has gone into making it as fair as possible and enabling as many people as possible to compete. But we're on to our like third classification system in as many years. Um, mm. So it's like, it's exhausting. I bet. It sounds, it sounds incredibly difficult. I mean, just thinking back to half an hour ago when you were describing uh, your different diagnoses, like you have such a unique combination of things i'm sure that every para athlete does and so where do you draw the lines like just just that thought experiment of like how do you put people yeah. into categories and there's always going to be people at the margins and and at some point people get cut off cut off um yeah yeah that just seems incredibly complicated it is yeah and i think you know nobody wants to exclude someone from the sport that they love doing um, but I think, you know, you're right that there is, yeah, you do have to draw the line somewhere. The IPC has chosen where they want to draw their line in terms of like minimum impairment. So you have to like meet a minimum threshold for like what your impairment is. And then, you know, the IFSC has, has the unen unenviable job of applying that rubric to climbing and, you know, it, we're small, the categories are still quite small. So there will always be, you know, as long as the categories are small, there will always be a large amount of variation between mm. the most and the least impaired person in each one. Like, can I, can I ask you how they assess that? I'm just really curious. Like, what does that look like? Who's deciding? And are, like, are you sitting down with your doctor and filling out a form or do they have their own medical practitioners who are, asking you questions like what what does that assessment process look like it's both so the first step is 
and this is talking about the classification process they used last year for the Moscow World Championships, which is the first time using the new system. Um, so they they released, they published a form, and it went on, it went online, and all athletes were told that they needed to submit this this form, and alongside medical evidence. So I went to my consultant with this form. And the medical evidence that I had to submit as an athlete with ataxia is this like standardized rating scale for ataxia symptoms. So it's like you, and it's a number of different like physical tests. So there's one where you have to like stand with your heel touching your toe um, and balance. And then there's walking with your heel to toe and staying balanced and there's like touching your nose and then touching the examiner's finger um to test like whether you whether you have like a tremor when you do that um what else they look at your eye movements so whether your eyes flicker when you look from side to side other other stuff so I went through that um that scoring system with my consultant and he filled out the form and we sent off the um the scoring on that alongside letters from like MRI scans and um other like neurological examinations sent all that off and then based on that they then do you go to the competition and on the morning of the morning before qualifications I think it was so quite early we went at like it was like in the hotel where we stayed and we had to like go down into like the basement of the hotel to go and have this like assessment in a random conference room. Um, and there's two, two medical examiners and they repeated the, they repeated the ataxia rating scale. Um, asked me a few questions. Um, and then they, and then they said, we think you're between categories and we need to see you climb to be able to um, make a final decision. So then the next day or that afternoon or what, what, whichever it was, like a bit later, we then went to the competition venue um, and there was like a side wall where they had put a couple of routes and they basically just watch you climb them and they ask you to do specific moves. So they were like, just climb up a bit, come back down. And then they wanted to see a dynamic move and um and then they and then they tell you the final decision and they observe athletes during the competition as well to make sure that like you haven't they basically want to make sure you haven't like exaggerated your um your disability during the testing and then like pull it out of the bag in the competition and it's mm. like obviously yeah they don't they want to just make sure that everything is consistent and see how people match up to each other um and they give you, they either give you a kind of fixed review date. So for me, that was for all the RP one, two, and three athletes, that was 2022. So this year, um, or they confirm it forever and then you never have to have an assessment again. Um, so yeah, that's the process. Um, so it's quite, it's quite involved and it's quite rigorous. Um, they publish like a document that has the rules for classification in, which kind of tells you roughly where you it, that can kind of help you figure out roughly which category you would sit in, but it's not until you see them and they like watch you move around and stuff that they can um, make that final decision about. Obviously for some categories, it's obvious, like for amputees and stuff, like it's really simple. I think they, I think they have to submit like an X-ray, um, but the physical examination is, is more straightforward and it's quicker, but for neurological and physical 
disabilities, there's such a range and they can be quite subtle mm. um, and complex that you have to take the time assessing them. So yeah, it's um yeah, quite a quite a long process. And I'm not super looking forward to going through it again this year, but it's just part of the process basically. Mm. Um it just is what it is. Yeah, that's, I'm sitting here thinking again, like, God, this is so complicated and strange because, you know, for you, you're in between categories. They want to see you climb. And I was just thinking about what you said earlier, like you, you struggle with coordination moves and dynamic moves. And so you work on it all the time. You practice it and you put really hard work into it and you've, I'm sure, gotten better. So that's that kind of adds a strange twist to it. Like you could potentially, through hard work, make yourself ineligible for a category that you might otherwise be in based on your condition and, and that's yeah that's strange I don't know that makes me feel weird yeah yeah I've thought about it and I think it is it is difficult because you don't want to you don't want to discourage athletes from training hard right you know they don't you don't want people to feel like they're in they're disincentivized from working hard at their sport because they're worried about what that will mean for their ability to compete in their category. Like they don't want to get moved. But then equally you need how how can you tell the difference between somebody who is like just skilled because they've they've trained really hard and they're strong. So like if you have if you have a coordination or a balance difficulty, but you have really strong fingers your like contact strength and your ability to just not fall off it's so much greater and your ability to compensate for a lack of balance it's so much greater than if you have like weak fingers and weak core so yeah I will say that my training has it has like dampened some of the effects of of my disability but it's still there and I still have to train it and practice so yeah I do find it difficult to um to figure out what my opinion is on that Mm. um you know you have to just leave it to the classifiers and you know they want to do things fairly they're motivated to be fair and it's the rules so um yeah but I think there is a like rightfully there's a level of scrutiny on like on how people perform and you have to be able to separate you have to be able to separate the fact that somebody has a disability from the fact that they are also likely to be training hard and improving in their like sport specific skills and getting stronger and just getting more experienced all the time to the extent that the impact of their disability might become less obvious. Does it mean it's still there? I, I think it does because all of that, yeah, I don't know. It's it's it is a difficult one. It mm. is a really hard one. Um, and I think you know, you know, I was, you know, when I did that sport specific test last year when we had to climb, and they said, "Can you do a dynamic movement?" And I thought, you know, this is going to be like some brand new. I know I've never done it before. I haven't got an opportunity to practice it. And yeah, I I just I totally bluffed it because that's how you know so that's where like the disadvantage is for me because I can't flash most dynamic movements I can't really just flash them I I have to try them multiple times and in a competition you can't do that and we actually had a coordination move on one of our qualifier routes um it was like a 
it was like a it was like a kind of it's hard to describe it you were like going off these two like really like tenuous slopers underclings and you had to stand up on a volume and go for a small like mini jug mm. it was it was tiny it was more like a crimp even and um yeah i i just um but then lots of people did who don't have coordination problems so you know whatever but um it's just it's just the game but i think you know um it reminds me of it's easy to pretend when you kind of you're training day to day and you feel quite strong and you feel quite good about your climbing it's easy to kind of almost forget because you know the foot the footwork issues and the balance issues and the like body positioning issues that I deal with all the time have been with me since the first day I pulled on a pair of climbing shoes so I kind of forget that they're there and then I think you know if somebody else was in my shoes climbing with the body that I have they'd probably really notice <laughs> what it's they'd be like what the hell <laughs> I can't work with this um but you forget about it and then and then you get put into a competition setting against people with either either they don't either they're not disabled because it's an able-bodied competition or they have different types of disabilities because it's a paraclimbing competition where we all have slightly different things it kind of brings out some of those issues because of the pressure because of the spontaneity if you're just there and you have one opportunity to stick the movement either you do or you don't um and uh yeah it makes me realize like it just reminds me i suppose that i don't have the same like I, my biology is just not the same as other people's um and i take it for granted that i can climb because i don't know just get on with it but um yeah no it is it is there and i'm kind of like working against it all the time mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I was just thinking about root setting in competitions too. Like that's another strange element to this is that the root setters um, make decisions. Like they they decide what makes the route hard. You know, is it a coordination thing like you just described or is it just how strong your fingers are and can you pull on these little holds statically, you know, between them and things like that. So that, that further, yeah, man, really complicated. <laughs> this whole thing yeah. is really complicated. It's a really interesting um, point. Like the root setters can kind of choose how to separate the pack. And, you yeah. know, they could, they could look at the field and, uh, you know, and they, and they don't, and they don't do this. They have guidelines about how to make it fair for like all of the different categories. So they introduce like symmetry for, um, for the, like for the arm amputees for the AU2 category. So they will usually mirror to an extent, the moves on both sides, so that if you've got, if it, it depends whether your right hand or your left hand is affected, then having like super leftwards moves gives people with a left-sided disability a disadvantage. So they introduce symmetry to to make it more of an even playing field. Um, I don't know what the guidelines are for the RP categories because it's like, yeah, it's... Um, it's impossible to cater for for everybody and make it hard enough for the level that we're at. Um, because, you know, like for me, like I do well on big, like macro slopers because my aim doesn't need to be as good. Um, 
and my footwork doesn't need to be precise. So I climb pretty well on those types of holds. But if you're somebody who has like a degree of like muscular weakness, for example, then gripping some of those holds like that is actually much more challenging. So is that is that fair? But yeah, like if you did it the other way, it would be it would be unfair in the opposite direction. So <laughs> I don't know. I just think like you have to you have to just, you know, they have the organizers of these competitions, they just have to manage these risks as far as they possibly can. And then and then we all just kind of have to accept that there is a degree of there's a degree of variation. Like no two paraclimbers are exactly the same and no two paraclimbers have exactly the same strengths and weaknesses. Just like in just like in the open competitions, like, you know, we see you know, boulders in the World Cup to struggle with dynamic movement to an extent. And and so they have to go home and they have to train really, really hard to like keep up with the field and make semifinals. So it's no different, really, I think, that, you know, you know what style of climbing you have to do in a para in a paraclimbing World Cup and you have to train for it. Um I don't like training endurance, but I do it because I compete in paraclimbing. <laughs> 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 well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your training because you talked earlier about how you've had all this practice in learning how to, I guess, manage your energy, you know, um, as it ebbs and flows and just be really conscious of the f the fact that you can't just go hard every day. It's, it's going to change. Um, so I'm curious, like, do you have a coach? I believe you have a coach. Is that right? Yeah, I've had um I've had different coaches along the way, but at the moment um I'm sponsored by Catalyst Climbing, which is like a, a coaching business in that operates in London. And um it's run by Louis Parkinson, who's like a movement coach. He's like oh, yeah. special in yeah. So he, I see him for for the occasional session when we can fit it in and I always learn like a lot about movement. Um previously like during lockdowns and stuff in particular and when I'm training for competitions I'll often seek the advice of like more conditioning and um like strength and conditioning or endurance specific coaches like the, the supplementary training um but at the moment I'm just um I'm kind of I'm kind of going it alone there because I think I mean I guess I just I guess I just wanted to learn how to manage my training myself um like having that accountability and support from a coach is really really valuable and I really like I've really appreciated it in the past and have really relied on it but I think now that I have like a better knowledge of the principles of of training and I know what I know what I'm good at and I know what my strengths and weaknesses are um I find day to day when I'm not training for a specific event, um, although I am at the moment training for the World Cups, but like it can just be more flexible, I think, to have a training plan that you've designed on your own and you're not you're not relying on like external factors like, oh, I'm paying someone some money to to do this training plan for me, so I better follow it because that's mm. it will it'll be worth it. Um it's just like you're just relying on like your intrinsic motivation to achieve your goals. It's a much more difficult way of training. Um, my, 
I'm in two minds as to how effective it is. I had um I had a really tough training session today where I felt like quite quite bad about my progress. <laughs> like I felt really like weak and like I'd gone backwards in the past year. Um, and part of that is probably just that I'm still recovering from COVID, right? But it made me think about whether, like, what the most effective way to train is. And I think if you can afford to have a coach, it's usually worth it. But um, not everyone's in that position. So I think, like, to be able to to kind of structure your own training is a really useful skill. And I'm learning all the time. Um, but, and, you know, I'm a coach, right? Like, I... I teach people climbing and I, I write training plans and I find that in a funny way so much easier <laughs> to write for someone else's strengths and weaknesses and goals yeah. than for my yeah. own and sometimes I can design a training plan spend two weeks following it and then be like no 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 this is totally wrong this isn't going to get me to where I need to be and then I feel like I'm back to square one but I've lost two weeks so um yeah I don't know it's a bit of a dilemma for me at the moment but um I've worked with a lot of really really like inspiring and um like supportive people like I've learned I've learned everything I've learned from the people that I've worked with over the years um but yeah it's uh at the moment I'm trying to figure it out myself with yeah. mixed results with mixed results yeah yeah I was curious I was gonna ask like how do you think about navigating a training plan I mean um do you do you have like a strategy for budgeting in flexibility, like the the opportunity to take an extra rest day if you need it or move things around? Or how do you, yeah, how do you think about navigating and sticking to a training plan that you create versus listening to your body and honoring whatever it is that you need? Yeah, I mean, I think the best training plan is one that you don't feel like you're constantly fighting your body to complete. Um, oh, I love that. That's great. And I think if you, you know, if your training is the volume of your training, the intensity of your training is right for you, then you don't feel perpetually like you're like catching up or like waiting for that next deload week because you're exhausted or like feeling sore all the time and you can't complete your training session because you're tired. And then you have to do a bigger session later in the week to compensate. I think that's a pattern that I've got into a bit in the past and eventually it got to a point where I just, I couldn't do it anymore and, and I felt miserable and I was actually losing strength, I think, because I was kind of over, over training. Um, and then I think, so I think like switching a bit to an approach where I felt like I had more to give each day. Like, you know, if, if I, like if I wanted to go another half an hour each day, I could do it. I'm not like going home when I've absolutely like trashed my body and, mm. you know, I'm desperate for a rest and I'm like, you know, my hands are shaking and I can't hold on anymore. I think never pushing it that far goes a long way towards like a, just a sustainable climbing and training practice. But equally, yeah, there's, you know, even when you've, even if you think you've balanced it perfectly, and everybody, everybody has to deal with this. Like they might have an unexpectedly hard day at work or they might just wake up feeling tired or they've got like a social event and so they have a hangover and so they don't feel like training. Everybody, you know, has those things in their lives to deal with. And I think it's not healthy, I think, for your training to get in the way of living a normal life, um, you know, unless you're a pro. And even then, I think, you know, you still have to have a social life, right, even if you're a pro. Um and I'm like as close 
as it gets to being a professional climber without actually being a professional climber. And I wouldn't, I think I would really feel like I was losing something if I let everything else slip at the expense of, of following a training program, just because it said, this is what I have to do on Tuesday. So I think learning to learning to be flexible and not follow things to the letter if, um, if it's not appropriate has been, been helpful but sometimes you know I just I've, I've planned to go climbing I've got plans to meet with someone to climb with them I've got specific training that I feel motivated and excited to do but I wake up or I get to the end of the day and I'm just exhausted and I think you know if I when I was a bit younger I think I probably would have pushed myself to go and regretted it probably and probably like there's like a cost to your health when you do that I think and you have just that bit further to go towards being fresh again, if you do that. And I think now just being a little bit kinder to myself and resting when I feel like I need to rest and listening to your body in that way is, um, it's helpful. I think, um, you know, I have had injuries, but I've had fewer injuries than I think I used to when I was trying to do it all, all the time. Um, because I just, I know when to stop um, and walk away. I'm curious what um, what you experience when you have a bad day. Is it just waking up feeling exhausted? Are there other symptoms that get, um, that flare up and are harder to manage some days versus others? Yeah, I guess like if I wake up and I get out of bed, like the first time I get out of bed in that morning, and like everything goes black <laughs> as I'm like walking from the bedroom into the kitchen for the first time that day. That's when I know it's like that's a, this is a bad day because it's just like like my blood pressure just will drop. Um, and I think there's just a sense of fatigue and it's it's not always sleepiness. It's not always like, oh, I want to lie down and go to sleep. But it's just like you can't think straight. You can't even imagine like you know, you need to take a shower and it just feels like climbing Everest or, you know, there's a pile of like clean folded laundry that you need to put away and you just cannot even stand up to like put it into the wardrobe or, you know, having to just eat like, you know, for the day, like you just eating like fruit and snacks and stuff that you don't have to cook because you don't have the energy to cook a meal. That's like, that's a bad day. And I don't get them that often, but there's really no, like, there's no question about on climbing on those days. Um, and I've had, like, you know, I've woken up on the morning of a competition and thought, oh, God, <laughs> this isn't going to be good. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's relatively rare, and I think the reason it's rarer for me now than it used to be when I was younger is just, um, like, climbing has just really built up my like energy reserves a lot um you know I'd say like three days out of seven would have been like that when I was 23 but now it's you know once a month maybe mm. um and you just kind of know like you just you know it's going to pass so after a while you just stop worrying about it like the first really bad day health day like you think the world is ending like I'm never going to feel normal again um 
you know, you know, it's literally like, it's like, is there something really serious and life-threatening wrong with me? Like, why can't I move? You know? Um, and now it's just like, okay, you know, for some, for some reason, I have no energy today. And it's hard to put your finger on it because it's not, it's not like, it's not like a normal like transaction of, oh, I did a lot of stuff yesterday or like I specifically didn't eat the right things or I drank too much or I went to bed late or I hiked 25 miles and that's why I'm tired today. It's like I had a perfectly normal day yesterday and today I've woken up and it's like I've been hit by a bus. And that's just like, the, that's just the nature of of disability because a lot often I think it's just like, small things are just kind of adding up like stresses on your body that you don't even necessarily register um you know like cooking a meal or taking a shower or like sweeping the floor all those things all take just that little bit more reserve for me than maybe for for you or or like people who are not um disabled and so sometimes it does all just hit you at once um but yeah, no, I'm I'm grateful that it doesn't happen often enough to really interfere with with my climbing. But I would say, like, I can't. There's people who can climb for three, four hours in a session, um, four or five days a week, and go for runs and lift weights and go on like outdoor climbing trips most weekends. And I just cannot do that. And I think it probably has affected my progress in the sport. Like, I like to think I'd be climbing harder, you know? I don't know. I don't know if I would be, but um, there is a there is an impact, I think, on, like, how much I can train and how much I've been able to progress. But I don't think there's any point, like, worrying about that because that I'm never gonna, that's never going to be the reality and there's no, like, turning back time or changing my cell biology or so it's not worth comparing myself to people who can can do that without consequences because I'll never be them and they'll never be me so Mm. so it's okay (laughs) yeah um what do you do on a day like that if you have a bad day you wake up like that what do you pivot to and and what are the things that help just I just stay indoors, like stay in the house, rest in bed if I need to. Um, If there's like small, like life admin type tasks that I have been putting off, I'll sometimes do those. Um, I'll maybe like, maybe head out and grab a coffee with a book in the afternoon, but um, try and get some sunshine if there is any. (laughs) Um, But yeah the the answer really to that question is nothing like you you need it just needs complete rest and patience it's like you just the world just stopped for the day Mm. life will go on like tomorrow or whenever um yeah it's just it's just rest basically like the kind of rest that I don't know I think you know I used to think about rest in terms of like oh if I'm resting today I might like just do some housework I maybe not go to the gym but you know I'll I'll keep busy around the house and maybe I'll go for lunch with a friend and blah, blah, blah. it's like no like complete rest is like doing 
no things, like zero things. Um, because everything uses energy and you literally just have to, you just have to let your body recover completely, like lie down all day if you have to. Um, it's really hard to do because it doesn't feel intuitively it doesn't feel productive like you're just thinking I'm wasting this day the sun is shining I had all these plans I could be working I could be climbing I could be doing whatever but it's in reality you couldn't so there's no point even worrying about it thanks for sharing that yeah I so we're at and we're at like 90 minutes now I just want to check in with you I have like three more bullet points that I'd love to talk about I'm happy to keep going but how are you feeling yeah, good. Okay. Go a bit longer. Okay, great. Um, I want to ask you how you got into coaching. And the couple times that you've brought it up and in our last conversation, it sounds like that fills you with a lot of joy. It sounds like you, you mm -hmm. really enjoy that and get a lot of fulfillment from it. And um, how did that come into your life? And I'd also just love to hear what some of your favorite aspects of coaching have been. Yeah. Sure. So how did I get into coaching? It's been three or four years now. So actually I, I started coaching, weird to think it now actually, like I started out coaching quite early on in my climbing journey. And actually I had, when I, when I was at university, I was heavily involved in rowing. Um, I was in the competitive rowing squad and um, devoted like a lot, all my free time rowing when I was when I was at university and then when I stopped um when I stopped racing because of my back issues actually at the time I started coaching a novice men's boat um like I taught eight guys to row together in a boat and um I just enjoyed it it was like it was it's rewarding because it's it kind of gives you a perspective on your sport that kind of go it's, it's outside of yourself. It's not just about you or the performance of you and your team or the result that you help to achieve. It's like you're making a contribution to someone else's sporting journey. It's just a slightly different um, perspective on, on the sport. And I think also it can teach you a lot about the kind of technical aspects of a sport. And I would definitely say like with, with climbing, that has been the case. Like, um, I was thinking about this the other day, like um, a specific type of coordination moves I've been trying to learn for a long time, teaching it to young people like 11, 12, 13 year old climbers has helped me learn to do it myself because I spend so long like watching, watching the errors that people make. <laughs> I can kind of figure out like the errors that I was making. But anyway, back to your question, which is how I got into coaching. It was, um, I'd had a few sessions with my first ever coach Louis who now still coaches me now um and um I was just kind of intrigued by they just like opened up a um like a there's like a training day like a course that you do to become a coach with Catalyst um I just expressed an interest I was like oh maybe I could um could just yeah I'd like I'd like to join a coach I was looking for like a, a part-time job to do in addition to my nine to five because at the time I was just to be honest like struggling I guess to um afford climbing as a hobby so it's kind of like if I can make climbing pay for itself this would be good um and I was already into I was already into paraclimbing competitions at this point but I'd had a 
I'd had a cycling accident and broken my wrist. So I did the training course with a broken arm. So you have to learn all these exercises, um, specific drills. And I did all of, I learned them all and I practiced them one-handed um, on the climbing wall during these training days. And, um, and yeah, once it all kind of healed and everything and I was able to like be assessed and yeah, I started coaching first groups of adults and then a vacancy came up on the, with the junior squad. Um, and I realized that that was sort of what I wanted to do. It was just, there's just something about, I think, working with somebody to help them have like a breakthrough in their climbing or like, you know, helping them to learn a specific aspect of like the psychological side of climbing. So managing fear or managing pressure and expectations and competition mindset and all of those sorts of things. Um, helping young climbers learn to problem solve and seeing them progress because they do they they progress like crazy it's like I think kids are born to climb and mm. if you start young it's phenomenal what like some of these kids can do um so you know apart from the fact that I'm really proud of how good they are as athletes it's just a really nice way to spend time at the weekend is like being part of their like climbing journey you know it's I don't know. Yeah, it's just it's just something really and it's good fun, you know. We have a laugh and it makes training it kind of gives you a perspective on training like, you know, it can be really fun and it's like working with a with a group of people to like figure out hard hard climbs and they all support each other really well and we do this thing at the end of every session. It's called um we go around in a circle and everybody's like has to come up with um something that they were proud of that one of their teammates did that day. So you know, go around the circle and, you know, one of them will say, I, you know, I'm really proud of um, my teammate for persevering on a, on a really, really hard move, even though they were scared of it. So it's not even like, I'm really proud of this person for sending a V8. It's like, I'm really proud of how they've like managed a difficult situation in their training. So they're so like insightful and they're both, like really like maturing as athletes it's so like I guess it's just a privilege to be part of that because otherwise it's just you know climbing is just it's a hobby or it's a job or it's like something that you do for yourself that you you know you're training to be better for your own like kind of just you know my climbing I do it for myself you know I climb for my own personal fulfillment and satisfaction but I think to have something that isn't like like I said like it's not just about me I think just adds a bit of um adds a bit of balance and perspective to it that's awesome and, and what a cool practice to instill in kids to look at each other and to be proud of one another for perseverance and effort and those other qualities that go beyond just getting to the top of something hard um that's yeah, that's super cool. I'm I'm curious, you're such a thoughtful person that's really coming through in this conversation. I wonder, do you have any other like life lessons or philosophies that you try to impart on these kids? Because being a coach is such a cool opportunity to really change people's lives, not just their climbing. And climbing is also an amazing teacher and helps us helps me at least learn some pretty major life life lessons just through 
this funny pursuit that we do. But um, yeah, are there any things that come to mind that you hope to or try to impart on your kids? I don't think I have like, I haven't got like an agenda with them really. Um, But I think what I do, what I do observe in them is just this like, you know, sense of like pride in their achievements and the, like the process of, of putting in, putting in effort and believing in yourself and you know, leaning on someone else for support and when you need it and having a goal that you're working towards, like all can come together to like create a really good result. But, you know, ultimately, you know, they're competition climbers and some of them are in the national junior team and there's pressure on them to to perform and it comes from within themselves and it comes from us as their coaches and it comes from the competition results that they want to achieve and it comes from social media as well, to be honest. Um and I think to be able to like offer in the, on the, in the training that, that we run on the, on Sundays and whenever it's like, it's just a safe space to like experiment with climbing and also just like learn new things and fail and have fun and get upset and know that like none of it really, none of it really matters. And like, it is still at the end of the day, like, it's not, it's none of their like jobs yet. <laughs> so it's, like, it's like, you know, I think it's, it's easy, I think, to get really caught up in like the performance aspect of it. But um, I think it's equally as important to like maintain that sense of fun and um, just know that like, you know, if, if they make, if, you know, if, if things go wrong and they don't have their best session, like that's, that's okay. No one's disappointed in them for that, I think is, is a really important thing because you know they're even even like the youngest climbers that I've that I've taught they have really like just just real like a sense of like expectation of themselves that as a coach you'd never need to be hard on anyone because everyone is so hard on themselves Mm. like you never need to be the person who's criticizing or like pointing out mistakes or suggesting that someone isn't trying hard enough because all of that like inner monologue for everyone is is there and like for most people I think the role of the coach is to actually like help them silence that um you don't need I think people you know adults particularly I've noticed actually they come to their coach and they say you know I need you to help make me strong and disciplined and like motivated to train and just make me a better climber because I'm rubbish and I'm like that's not what you need. Like you just need, you need somebody to be like the gentlest, most encouraging observer of technique. That's what I am. I'm there to like, to like help you learn. I'm not here to like, like reinforce negative self-talk. Like mm-hmm. that is just never going to help you in your climbing. It's going to make you feel terrible. You're going to go home feeling like a worse climber. And I'm, um, yeah I don't know I, th- I think I guess that would be the that would be the takeaway I think is like what is the role of what is the role of a teacher for anybody really and I think it's like you know you have to you have to be so um it's so important to know what power you hold over your clients and your students because they're really looking to you to like 
pass a judgment, I guess, on their climbing potential and their ability. And it's like you have to be so careful with that power because you can use it to such um to such like merit and you can use it to really like help them just accelerate in their climbing. Or you can really make them feel like useless at the sport. I don't think I've ever done that, thankfully. I hope. I can't I can't <laughs> um, imagine you yeah. I no, I don't think so. I think um I'm kind of I think I'm kind of known as a bit of a soft touch as a coach, but I just I don't know. I think it I think there's like a I think there's a balance, but um you know, I think most on balance most people need more encouragement than than like constructive criticism even constructive criticism like you're there to like point out technical errors and like help them improve right but there's ways of doing it that um that will like uh, are more productive than others i think mm. i love that that's that's awesome and so relevant for all of us listening and um it's interesting. I um I did some coaching last year for the first time, some climbing coaching. And I remember feeling this like strange pressure to have to have the answers, to have to tell people what to do. Um, and feeling really insecure about that. Like, who am I to tell people what to do? I'm still just trying to figure all this stuff stuff out for myself and become a better climber. I really struggled with like being in the authority role, you know, as a coach. And it's funny that this wasn't obvious to me at first, but it actually took trying the wrong thing to kind of there, you know, end up having this aha moment. But it was, it became so much more effective to just ask questions, to just have conversations and ask questions. And that's what I love doing, obviously, anyway. Um, and I just enjoyed that so much more once I kind of started shifting uh, my own role and the way I thought about myself as a coach, I'm here to help someone discover themselves and to discover who they want to become and to encourage them to, to do that, whatever, whatever that looks like for them. Um, but that's not obvious. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, clients, yeah. they're paying you money. They want results. They want you to whip them into shape sometimes. And you almost have to convince them that, like you said, you have to convince them that that's not what yeah. they need. Yeah. I mean, people often, they come to you with an idea of like what they think they need in terms of you know often it's like I don't know I had a I had a I had a client recently in fact um they were just really really like motivated to 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 improve but you could tell that like they just really loved climbing but really struggled on overhangs was basically the issue. Just, you know they just said like I need to be stronger I need to get stronger so um help me get stronger I watched them climb for a bit and I was like, you know, actually there's one really, really simple thing you can do. And it's just to like put your weight on your feet more. Um, but it was like a process of, that was a kind of time when I was like, Oh, I do have the answer mm. here, but often you don't. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm coaching people who are actually on the face of it, better climbers than me, but, that doesn't mean there isn't value in like a fresh pair of eyes or just, yeah, somebody to like ask a, a question in a specific way or, you know, just a different perspective on the way that they're climbing. Um, someone to bounce ideas off trying different beta. But um, yeah, I think asking questions is often, if I don't know the answer to um, to a an issue i'm just i just ask the question like what would happen if you did this and then they try it and it doesn't work and i'm like oh 
that's strange. Let's try something else. Um, yeah, I think there is a bit of pressure as a coach to like always know what you're doing and be like, you know, the most experienced and the, the best climber in the room. And actually, I think to be a good coach, there's so many other qualities that you can have that are really useful in that setting that can override a lot of the like insecurities you might have as in terms of your own like qualifications to teach this other person who you think is more talented than you um but yeah what are some of the qualities that you feel are your strengths that you bring to coaching or that feel most important to you to bring to your coaching Mm, I think like I think like empathy to be able to like get to the bottom of how someone is thinking is I think really helpful in climbing because often when someone hasn't has fallen off a move or is like you're you're suggesting we try a hard climb and they're suddenly looking really really hesitant or they do top a climb or they fall off it and you're you're talking about like what happened like why did you fall off what are you going to do differently next time and they're sort of thinking um you know just like that was all rubbish it was all bad. There was nothing, there was nothing good about that. I can't pick a single reason why I fell off because I just fell off because I climbed it badly. And you kind of have to, I think, be able to get to the bottom of like, why is, why is this person approaching climbing in this way? And often it is just that defense of like, if I'm so, if I just shut down all like rational conversation about, about what mistakes I might've made, then we don't have to get to the inevitable answer, which is just, I'm no good as a climber. This is why I can't do the climb. I'll never be able to do it. You know, there's like a kind of inherent like belief there. And um, often, you know, the best sessions that I've had have been the ones where we kind of get to the bottom of that, of that issue and talk about it a little bit. And then, and then you just sort of, you just kind of pose, like, it's just like, well, what could go right if you tried it? You know, you could get to the top of it. And, and give them like some technical tips, like just like specific cues to think about. And actually it wasn't really the technical cues that they needed. It was the reframing how they think about it. And I think to be able to have those conversations where you know that an athlete that you're, that you're teaching is feeling really, really vulnerable and they really need to feel like not just physically safe with you, but like psychologically safe where they can express all of these like, I think, you know, the reason that climbing is such a incredible sport is also the reason why it can be so scary is that it like really brings out all of our like deepest and darkest like fears about, you know, about ourselves. And, and you know, climbing is an excellent and safe way of exploring some of those um, fears, you know, things like, you know, a lack of self-belief and lack of self-esteem and things like that I think you know climbing can really help you get through some of those things and work through them in a safe context but you know as as a coach I think you need to be able to find that balance and like understand what someone needs do they need do they need fun and games and or do they need to be pushed a little bit harder um or do they just really need to like understand the root cause of some of the issues and I say this as somebody who has like serious fear of like 
big moves at the top of the wall, lead falls, those kinds of things, like really, really struggle with them. Like, and you know, I've been really embarrassed at how badly I've struggled with some of those fears. Um, and I've had to work through them with, with a coach because it's not always something you can just do on your own because sometimes it's just, you get into a fixed way of thinking about, about it and approaching it. And you just get into a mindset of like, I'm never gonna, never gonna get through this. Nothing's ever going to change. Um, and having someone else to kind of offer that encouragement can be really helpful. So I think it's been a, it's been a good lesson for me, like knowing what has been useful for my own climbing is like it's helped with my coaching I think because it's helped me just realize what like the various potential dynamics are between a coach and their student um and every student needs something slightly different I think so yeah empathy that was it (laughs) (laughs) I love it I love it thank you for all that that's incredible um I have one more question here in front of me at least one maybe maybe more we'll see where this goes Mm -hmm. but I've been wanting to ask you this. We talked about it a little bit in our first conversation, but um, this is something that Doreen brought up when she introduced me to you. And um, I just think it's a really interesting idea. And you already talked earlier in this conversation about how we societally tend to think about people with disabilities as this binary thing. Like they exist on in one of two different roles. Either they are sedentary and can't do anything or they're a Paralympian and they're just like so inspiring and really it's a spectrum like everything. Um, do you feel pressure to be inspiring and yeah, how, how do you deal with that? Do you, do you experience that from other people? I don't necessarily know that I feel pressure to be inspiring because I don't know that it's a behavior that you can like model necessarily but I, what I do know is that like sometimes people will say to me and sometimes people will describe me as inspiring. And I guess there is like, you know, there is a kind of whole like controversy about um, this concept of inspiration porn where disability is used as like a vehicle to just like remind non-disabled people like how good they've got it. And, you know, you know, if so-and-so can, if this disabled person can do something impressive or like great then then you know what's your excuse because you're not facing these barriers in life and I think what it does is it reduces it reduces disabled people down to this um just like you know they're just like a tool for for non-disabled people to use to like make themselves feel better about their Mm -hmm. lives and that implies that your life as a disabled person is somehow worth less or it's only worth it's only worth what motivation and inspiration non-disabled people can take from it and wow you know I I reject that because you know my life is I feel that I have a really really like privileged and um fulfilling life and you know part of that part of the experiences that I've had in life have come from being disabled it's opened up a world to me that wouldn't have been available to me as a relatively mediocre able-bodied athlete like you know I've been I've represented my country in my sport and you know I haven't done that in spite of my disability and I haven't it's no more amazing that I've done it than 
than anyone else. In fact, it's probably more amazing for somebody to like do well in able-bodied sport because it's so much harder to get into and like meet the standard that you need to, right? And I think, you know, but I don't take exception to people seeing me climb and like seeing the way that I train or maybe like reading some of the um, insights that I share on social media or some of the things that I say about inclusion and diversity in sport that like you know I do want to kind of inspire people to think about life in a different way but I don't want them to do that because they've seen me suffering and it reminds them that like they don't have real problems so they should just like pull their thumbs up pull themselves up with their bootstraps and get on with things that's not what I want but what I do want is to use the platform that I've been given um to just like I don't know offer a slightly different narrative about disability and um offer a slightly different perspective on climbing because I think we can get caught up in the like white able-bodied middle-class ideal of of the sport that is accessible actually to maybe a visible majority of climbers but actually there's so much more to the sport than um than than meets the eye and you know I think if we want if we want to think about you know if you're to think about what do we want in the long term for this sport and I think you know my personal view and the view of many people I know is that you know widening access and and making it you know something that is feels welcoming and and accessible to people from a variety of backgrounds it can only be good for for climbing so I think you know if somebody if somebody listens to me like give a talk at an event and they were like I feel really inspired to like that I'm part of this sport that that can be so meaningful to so many people then great perfect if you see me like roll up to the climbing wall in my wheelchair and get on my warm-up climb and you think oh I'm just so inspired that you even got out of bed today then you're kind of missing the point there (laughs) I, I, I think you know I think I've but inspiration porn is a specific like category of ableism that we're all kind of we're all prone to it because we've been conditioned to see disabilities as a particularly like pitiful and undesirable thing like if you become disabled in your life then god that's a tragedy and like what a shame for you but actually that hasn't been my experience like it's not been a negative experience for me um and I think if we can kind of switch the narrative a little bit about disability that actually it can be it's just an experience you know it's like moving house or losing your hair or um which obviously you know all these all these things can be positive or negative experiences for people can't they but um it's just just a thing that happens um and we can we can make if we can you know we can just make things better for disabled people and and then we can be less disappointed for people who become disabled because it won't be such a difficult thing to live through anymore Mm. um and yeah sport and physical activity and access to the outdoors is all part of that um it's just one small part of it but um yeah, a little corner of the world that I'm trying to change and make better. <laughs> I love it. That's beautiful, man. And it's it's so cool to hear because I have never I've never thought about that concept of inspiration porn. I've never even heard that before. So that's 
But as you're describing it, I'm like, damn it, that's exactly what's happening. You're right. Um, so thank you for your thoughts on that. And that's, yeah, I, I've just really loved this conversation. It's so interesting to chat with you and hear your perspectives and you're so well-spoken. Um, you have such insight into, um, into everything I've asked you about. You're a really thoughtful person and this has been amazing. I think it's going to really touch a lot of people. So thank you for your time today. I want to ask you before we, before I let you go here, we have a few more things on the list, um, that we can either save for next time or we can talk about now. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet in this conversation that feels especially important to share before I let you go? I think the outdoor climbing thing. Okay. Um, yeah, we haven't really talked about that, but I remember at the end of our last conversation, we touched a bit on this, didn't we? That like, I'd always felt that there was something preventing me from really like getting into outdoor climbing in in the way that a lot of people do. And I hadn't really managed to like unpick why that was exactly. But like, as we were talking, I was realizing like just everything, all the thought and all of the like compromise that has to go into being able to climb outdoors is just so much um, greater than, than it like is for many other people. And that actually it's kind of no surprise that, um, no surprise really that, that it doesn't feel accessible to me, but I feel like maybe I'm running out of energy to talk about it now. So, um, so we could leave it or, um, or we could, we could catch up again another day, depending on what you want. But I know we were talking about like, you know, just that, you know, it's not just about being able to like put all the gear in a bag and then like walk the approach. It's also like, can you carry the gear? Can you, once you've done the approach, can you even climb? Mm. Once you've done the climbing, can you do the walkout? Are you more, he like, you know, I've always felt like I'm much more heavily, like to be able to climb outside, I have to rely on other people to like slow down, carry extra stuff. Like, you know, it's not something that I can just like do of my own volition and I know that like outdoor climbing is something that does require you to have a partner in a way that indoor bouldering doesn't but it feels I've always felt like my um like there's there's just so many barriers like can I find accessible accommodation near the crag is the public transport to the to the crag accessible typically no um so I think it's um something that I've really struggled with but I, th I think it's something we probably have to go into more detail to talk about um on another call uh, okay yeah if you if you wanted to you've probably got like quite a lot yeah I there. do I do that was really talking. um yeah let's let's plan on a follow-up I'd love to chat more about that I think just a little bit of context for people that are listening in case I keep this in yeah um, is that I think that came up in our first conversation because we were talking about how you are an indoor climber, you identify as an indoor and competition climber, and you don't climb outside or you you feel like you can't climb outside. And it, from this is just kind of off the cuff what I remember, but you get encouragement from people like, oh no, you can totally do it. And they, they want you to kind of engage in this like hero narrative of overcoming this big obstacle. And But 
you know, it's like, no, this is, this is actually incredibly unrealistic and there's way more barriers here than meets the eye. And it almost, yeah, yeah. The way you talked about it was, was really interesting that it can almost feel, um, I don't know, dismissive or patronizing maybe when people are just trying to encourage, but they, they haven't really thought it through, like what that would actually take. Yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't thought it through. It's like, you know, I've always thought like, I'd love to like outdoor climbing and why the hell don't I like outdoor climbing? Like I'm a climber. I I should love it. I should feel really like psyched to go and lead 8A outdoors or whatever the goal would be. And I thought about it. I've tried to make plans. People invite me to come along on their trips and I just, you know, the, the week leading up to that trip and the week following it, sacrifices would have to be made. Like I would have to really like really limit my energy expenditure in the two weeks. And when you're a competition climber, you can't really afford to like jeopardize your training like that. And then also all of those things that we just talked about, like, can I even get there? And once I get there, will I even be in a position like energy and pain levels wise to enjoy it? And is outdoor climbing even particularly conducive to um, to like the condition that I have? Because like big falls are out of the question and like finding small footholds on without like a color, without like color coding is more difficult for me because I have more vision. And so there's just all these things that just kind of mount up. And then, and then it made me realize that actually it's no surprise that I don't feel excited by the idea of outdoor climbing because it's, it's just like it's kind of it's kind of in the past it's kind of been a bit of an ordeal and it's really really like I've you know I've had to spend weeks recovering so then I think but maybe there's a way and and the way is really it's it's for everybody who I'm going with to make unreasonable sacrifices like not going to their favorite crag because it's not accessible, going to the crag that I can get to, carrying all my stuff, cutting the day short potentially, or like taking a more expensive transport option or staying in more expensive accommodation or hiring a car because I can't do the public transport. And then you just think, yeah, it's just easier if I don't, it's easier for everyone if I don't. And so that's kind of been my outdoor climbing experience. And I feel like maybe I just like do my friends an injustice by claiming that this is how I, I mean I don't claim that this is how they feel about it but when you're disabled sometimes you can just you just feel like a burden mm. and um like nobody's made me feel this way it's just it's just what life is like um that you know why would you know I resent having to live my life in this way sometimes so why why would I put, ask anybody else to to go through those same that same process when they could just they could just go and like have a completely normal experience um because even like you know paraclimbers even other paraclimbers go on outdoor climbing trips um but their accessibility needs are just so different to mine that it's just not really compatible um that like a short walk in for one paraclimber is just impossible for me so i don't know um and they're like you know it doesn't make them any less disabled like we just have different, just different experiences. So, um, yeah, it has made, yeah, I guess there's kind of a narrative that like real climbers climb outdoors. Mm. Um, but I am a real climber. I just, 
can't really walk. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, I'm glad you said that because that was my takeaway from our first conversation. It was just kind of realizing how much, um, I think many of us play into that narrative without even realizing it and how unfair Mm -hmm. that is to, to just have that as like a blanket expectation or pressure to put on people who either prefer to climb inside or logistically can only climb inside or whatever, you know, we're all, we're all climbers and we're all um, just engaging in the sport in whatever way we can and and love and um, find enjoyment in and find challenge in. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just better if we don't assume that someone would have a better experience if they did it the way that we do it, (laughs) I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just disabled people. It's, you know, there's lots of people who have like historically had real access barriers to the outdoors and outdoor climbing from, you know, having access even to like the safety knowledge and protocols and the training for that to being able to access the gear that you need, um, you know, living, living near a crag and having the transportation, like if you're like working class or if you're a person of color, like there are, there are there are barriers and they're all different and I think you know if I think there has been a bit of a debate about what those barriers are and whether they really exist but um I think it's easy if you don't have to deal with them to say well they're just you know they're not there's a way around that if you try hard enough but Mm. like sometimes trying hard uses up all your resources to even be able to do the climbing that you were trying to do in the first place so right yeah it's um i think it's a bit more complicated than um then we make then we can make out make it out to be like if you wanted to be outside you'd be outside it's like well i really liked being outside like i was really an outdoors person and and that part of my life has not been something i've been able to really salvage despite a lot of efforts and I can't just be like I've just been lazy there has to be a reason why I haven't why I haven't done that otherwise I'd be out there all the time you know mm. but like you know yeah and that's okay yeah and that's okay yeah 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 um what's next for you you're training for the world cups right now tell me about that what's coming up for you and what are you excited about yeah, so there's a um, a World Cup in two World Cups. Well, there's three World Cups this season. There's one in Salt Lake City, actually, um, in May, uh, which the GB team are not going to. Um, we're prioritising the European World Cup. So there's one in um, Innsbruck in Austria and one in Villa in Switzerland. And they're like a, they're like a few weeks apart. So um, I haven't figured out my logistics for the summer yet, but... Um, thinking about maybe spending some time out in in Europe like training working remotely competing should be good it's been um it's been a few months well I guess September was my last um international competition so yeah I'm kind of starting to train in earnest for those now um I like tested out my endurance a little bit today and I was it wasn't it wasn't good so (laughs) I have a lot of work to do um yeah yeah and yeah just like more of the same um like training coaching working trying to fix health inequalities and yeah i we haven't even talked about that we'll have to save that for next time too but it's just just so it's awesome to hear about 
the work that you're doing. It sounds incredibly important. I'm sure I could learn so much from you about that and what you actually do day to day. But um, I guess I'll just say thank you for the work that you do. It sounds um, really meaningful and important, and I'm sure it's hard um, as those things often are. Um, no, it's yeah. a it's a privilege to get to do it. Really, um, you know, it's like it's a big problem all over the world, isn't it? But um, in this country, I think you know it's something that everybody's rallied around in the wake of the pandemic. And so I think to be able to be part of that work that's being done is, you know, it's, yeah, I don't, yeah, no, it's just, it's, it is a privilege. Um, and yeah, so I can't even really say that it's, it's that hard. Um, I'm just like one small part of um, a system that's trying to change mm. itself. Um, awesome. But it's good. To, it's good to be part of it for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. With the competitions coming up, is there going to be a live feed? Can we follow Leah in her competition journey this summer? Or, yeah, is there a way to follow along? Yeah. Um, usually finals for the World Cups are live streamed. Um, it's usually on YouTube. I, I don't know if it's going to be on YouTube because of the Eurosport thing. But oh, actually, I think right. I think paraclimbing might not be um, covered by Eurosport. Um, but yeah, there's a, there is usually a live stream of finals. Um, I think all the details are still to be confirmed. Um, and obviously like I'm like documenting my training and competition journey on Instagram. So there's that too. Um, but, um, yeah. Perfect. Well, I will do some digging and try to find some links for people where they can find that. And, um, when this comes out, I'll have a better idea of, how close we are to that competition, those oh. competitions, and I'll put them on people's radar. Um, nice. This will probably be a month out, maybe five or six weeks out from publishing. But um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been awesome to talk to you again and get, to get to know you a little bit better and um, to get a glimpse into your world and the paraclimbing world. And um, I will be sure to link to your Instagram for people that want to follow you and Sweet. see you climb and um i think that's it yeah hmm. i appreciate you for taking the time today I, this this turned into a long one and um yeah i'm glad <laughs> no, you've recovered from life. covid and and we're able to chat for this long this has been really fun yeah <laughs> yeah me too um thanks for having me it's been really good to talk Hey friends, before you go, don't forget to check out Grasshopper Climbing. You can check them out on Instagram at Grasshopper Climbing or visit their brand new website. It's beautiful at grasshopperclimbing.com to find out where you can find a board nearby and try it out for yourself. And if you want your very own grasshopper board in your garage, it's basically an entire climbing gym in your garage, then tell them I sent you and you can save lots of money on your very own grasshopper. And be sure to check out Rhino Skin Solutions. These guys are the best in the biz when it comes to skincare products for rock climbing. I use it all the time. Pretty much everyone I know who climbs really hard uses this stuff or has used this stuff and loves it. I love the repair cream and I love the performance cream and the dry spray. Those are my go-tos 
And if I had to recommend one product to try, just get a big bottle of Repair and try it out and put it on in the evenings after a climbing day. It'll help your skin toughen, it keeps it pliable, and it helps it heal overnight more quickly so you can get back on the rock. So check them out. You can find them at rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. And that is it, my friends. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you sticking with me through to the very end. Hope you guys have an amazing week. Much love to all of you. And we will see you next time. Like we do it, like we do it, like we do it.